Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is February 18th, 2021, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is The Ramped Trial. It's a guess, gas, gas. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. He's also an avid FOMED supporter and producer through various online outlets, including being a wonderful member of the SGEM faculty. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris. Thanks very much, Ken. The most important thing I always want to ask you about is any news on the release date for Top Gun Maverick? Well, they say it's going to be July 2nd, 2021. So one year and six days after the original release date that was planned. But, uh, you know, I'm holding my breath right now, man. Don't hold your breath that long. That could be dangerous. Yeah, you know, I, I, I could, could pass out and have a little fit. Well, we have, we have waited this long, but I do have that standing invitation for all those SGEM listeners, all those FOMED wonderful people out there that I am going to host a Top Gun Maverick party whenever this thing actually does get released. And you're coming. You're coming in your full dress attire. 100% I'm coming in my full dress attire. The only question is going to be which of the attires I'm going to bring or all four or five, you know. <laughs> well, let's get started with a case. All right. So a 46-year-old female presents to the emergency department with sudden onset and severe right flank pain. She is pacing around at triage in tears and says she has a history of kidney stones. She is asking for something to help her with pain, but the department is very busy and it will be some time before she can get into a treatment space. Pain is the primary reason patients present to the emergency department in many cases. Oligoanalgesia is the term used to describe poor pain management through the underuse of analgesia. Effective pain management is an important indicator of the quality of patient care. Multiple factors have been thought to contribute to oligoanalgesia. Overcrowding, language barriers, age, gender, ethnicity, and insurance status. Delays in providing adequate analgesia leads to poorer patient outcomes, prolonged ED length of stay, and reduced patient satisfaction. And Chris, it can take a long time for someone in severe pain to receive an analgesic in the emergency department. Previous research out of Australia has shown that the median time can be anywhere between 40 to 70 minutes for analgesia administration. Yeah, that's a super long time if you're in severe pain. And these delays are not unique to Australia. A study done in the USA reported a mean of 116 minutes, so almost two hours for patients presenting to the emergency department with pain to receive analgesia. To minimize delays, different strategies have been implemented to address the problem. Whether these are advanced protocols, provision of oral analgesics at triage, or the use of novel analgesic agents that don't require intravenous access. Recently, there's been an increased interest in using methoxyfluorine or penthrox, an inhaled non opioid analgesic, to provide rapid short term analgesia. In Australia, methoxyfluorine has been widely used at sub anesthetic doses for analgesia in the pre-hospital setting all the way back to 1975. Its use has become more global in recent years 
and at low doses, it has a very reassuring safety profile. Furthermore, there have been no reports of addiction or abuse related to these inhaler devices. The majority of studies of methoxyfluorine for pain focus on traumatic pain. This study aimed to assess its effectiveness in treatment of both traumatic and non-traumatic pain. All right, what's the clinical question we're trying to answer today? What is the effectiveness of methoxyfluorine versus standard care for the initial management of severe pain among adult ED patients? And the reference, Chris? Britchko et al., rapid administration of methoxyfluorine to patients in the emergency department, ramped. A randomized controlled trial of methoxyfluorine versus standard care from Academic Emergency Medicine, February 2021. All right, let's run through that, Pico. What was the population? So they looked at adult patients aged 18 to 75 years with severe pain defined as an initial numerical rating scale pain score greater than or equal to eight. And they had a number of exclusions, and I'll list those in the show notes. What was the intervention? Three milliliters of inhaled methoxyfluorine. And what did they compare it to? They compared it to standard analgesic care, which could include paracetamol or acetaminophen, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, tramadol, oral oxycodone, or intravenous morphine. All right, let's run through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? Primary outcome was the proportion of patients that had at least a 50% reduction in their pain score at 30 minutes. And their secondary outcomes? The median pain score at 15, 30, 60, and 90 minutes, and the proportion of patients that achieved a greater than two-point drop in their pain score on the numerical ratings scale. And they did have some additional secondary outcomes that included data pertaining to adverse effects, both minor and major. This is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Lisa Britchko is an emergency physician working in a combination of private and public tertiary hospital emergency departments in Melbourne, Australia. She's authored 24 peer-reviewed emergency medicine research publications, primarily focusing on projects to promote safe and efficient patient care. Welcome to the SGEM, Lisa. Thanks for having me here as part of your SGEM podcast. Well, you've done all these papers on patient safety and efficiency. What got you interested in pain research? So throughout my emergency medicine training and career, I've always been really interested in exploring ways that we can improve the care we provide our patients, but doing so in a safe and efficient manner. And I think it's really important um, to treat our patients' symptoms um, as that can have a profound impact on their whole experience within the emergency department. And that's really why they've often come to us. Well, we're going to get you to read your conclusions from the abstract itself. So share that with the SGEM. And then Chris and I will go through a quality checklist, talk about the key results. But then we're really looking forward to talking nerdy with you. So can you read your conclusions? Initial management with inhaled mefoxifluorine in the ED did not achieve the pre-specified substantial reduction in pain, but was associated with clinically significant lower pain scores compared to standard therapy. All right, Chris, let's go through the quality checklist for randomized clinical trials, and there's 11 questions. That first question is, are we looking at people who presented to the emergency department? Yes, we are. 
And were the patients adequately randomized? They were. Did they conceal the randomization process? We're not sure about that. Did they do an intention-to-treat analysis? In other words, did they analyze the patients in the groups to which they were randomized? They did. The study patients, were they recruited consecutively? No, this was a convenient sample based on the times of day that a research assistant was available. The patients in both groups, were they similar with regards to prognostic factors? They were. Was everybody blinded, the patients, the clinicians, the outcome assessors, to group allocation? No, they didn't have a sham group. So the methoxyfluorine is administered by inhaler, whereas standard analgesics are administered orally and occasionally intravenously. Um, Would have been interesting if they had a sham inhaler group, though. Were all groups treated equally except for the intervention? They were. Did they have complete follow-up? Yeah, it was nearly perfect. They only lost one patient. All patient important outcomes were considered? Yes, they were. And the 11th and final question, the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? We are not sure about that. All right, let's run through the results. They randomized 121 patients into this ramped study, and data was available for analysis in 120 of them. The mean age of the patients included was 42 years, and 51% were female. 84% of the patients were enrolled during daytime hours, which they defined as 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. The vast majority of patients arrived by private transport, with only 4% arriving by ambulance. Chris, what was the key result? The key result was that there was no statistical difference in the primary outcome between methoxyfluorine and standard care. Yeah, that primary outcome was a reduction of pain score by greater than 50% at 30 minutes. What did they find? They found that six patients are 10% in the methoxyfluorine arm and three patients are 5% in the standard care arm had a reduction of pain score by greater than 50%. This was not a statistically significant difference. The hazard ratio for the favorable outcome was 1.07, but again, the confidence intervals crossed one and it was statistically non-significant. How about the secondary outcomes? The administration of methoxyfluorine was associated with a significant reduction in pain score at all time points. So 15, 30, 60, and 90 minutes. And that's listed in the show notes. And the median time to rescue analgesia was longer in the methoxyfluorine arm at 66 minutes compared to 46 minutes in the standard therapy group. And this was statistically significant. And importantly, there were no serious adverse effects that could be attributed to the intervention, and median emerged length of stay was similar between both groups. All right, Lisa, this is the point in the podcast where we get to talk nerdy, and we have 10 nerdy questions for you to help us and the listeners better understand your study. Now, Chris and I will just alternate back and forth, and we would like you to respond to each of the questions. Are you ready to talk nerdy, Lisa? Sounds good. All right, here we go. I've got the first one, and this is about convenience sample. This was a convenient sample when research assistants were available. Do you think that that could have impacted the results? And if so, in what way? Um, so by using a convenient sample, we were able to capture patient presentations across all seven days of the week, including a proportion of patients that, that arrived in the early morning or the late evening. 
Um, our timing for recruitment was constrained by the times of the day our on-site research assistant and ED pharmacist were available. So it does mean that certain types of painful conditions that may be more likely to present overnight might have been slightly underrepresented in this study. And we understand that it is the nature of emergency medicine that's 24-7, 365, but research doesn't necessarily happen in that time frame. So we understand that this is a common limitation of emergency medicine research. The next question is about the mode of arrival of patients. So the vast majority of patients, 96% in this study, arrived by private vehicle. Only 4% of patients were brought in by ambulance. This number seems pretty low. Uh, was this surprising to your team? And do you think this low number limits the generalizability of your results? Yep. So I certainly agree that the number of patients arriving by ambulance did seem low. One of the inclusion criteria for our study was that patients must have been in severe pain at the time of arrival to ED triage. Um, in Australia, many of our ambulance crews are appropriately trained to administer various analgesia options, including mefoxifluorine, including paracetamol, and including parenteral opiates, such as fentanyl or morphine, um, to patients that tell the ambulance they have severe pain symptoms. It means that patients who arrive by ambulance have often had their pain symptoms at least partially treated by the ambulance crew and are often no longer in severe pain when they arrive to us at ED triage and so then did not meet our um, inclusion criteria. Yeah, that's very interesting. I also really like that in Australia, your EMS crews or pre-hospital crews can give such a variety of analgesic agents. It's pretty great. The third question is this one goes to 11. Do you even know where that reference is from, Lisa? No. <laughs> yeah, so I better explain it because there might be other people that don't understand. There was this movie called This Is Spinal Tap. And they had these amps for the guitar, and most amps go to 10, but these amps were special amps for this one guitarist named Nigel. And if you needed that little extra, that little to go over the top, it went to 11. And so that was the reference. But this is about different outcome measures in pain trials. Why did you choose an 11-point numeric rating scale, or an NRS, for a pain rating option over other options that are available to assess patients in pain? Yep, so our emergency department routinely records every patient's numerical um, rating scale pain score, so that 11-point scale, when patients arrive to ED triage. That certainly made ease of recruitment for this study by using that same consistent scale that we already use. And our emergency department also uses the 0 to 10, or an 11-point numeric rating scale, and everyone who gets triaged does get asked, what's their pain on a score from 0 to 10? So I understand why you chose this. The next question is about the age of the patients in the study, and one of your exclusion criteria was age. Why did you decide to exclude patients younger than 18 and over 75? There is evidence that children and older adults are at more risk for oligoanalgesia. Yep. So the decision to exclude paediatric patients was largely based on the um, demographic mix of our emergency department in which the recruitment occurred, so the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. We are in an adult emergency department and it is uncommon for us to care for patients under the age of 18. Um, so certainly I agree that elderly patients are an increased risk for the harms associated with oligoanalgesia. However, we decided to exclude that, that elderly patient group from our study based on local protocols for mefoxifluorine use 
and safety data that suggest mifloxifluorine should be used with caution in elderly patients, especially elderly patients that have any potential for renal or hepatic dysfunction. The fifth question we had for you, Lisa, was about hemodynamics. Another exclusion for your study was hemodynamic instability. This was defined as a heart rate less than 40 or greater than 140 beats per minute, or a systolic blood pressure less than 90 or greater than 180. I did not think methoxyfluorine had a clinically significant impact on heart rate or blood pressure. So why did you exclude these patients? Um, so certainly I agree with you, methoxyfluorine is quite safe from a hemodynamic perspective. Um, patients were excluded from our study if they required immediate resuscitative care in one of our dedicated resuscitation cubicles. So those patients that had very abnormal vital signs such as profound bradycardia or profound hypotension that needed to be taken immediately from ED triage to a resuscitation cubicle. So it was more about a clinical presentation than just a specific number. I mean, if somebody had a heart rate of 30, something else was going on in addition to that heart rate of 30. Exactly. The next question, you measured the NRS up to 90 minutes. Would measuring time points beyond 90 minutes be useful in order to see if patients did not have adequate analgesia after 90 minutes? Yep. So there may be some additional information that we could have gained from measuring time points beyond 90 minutes. We were mindful um, that this study outcome was focused primarily on assessing the initial response to pain scores of mefoxifluorine versus standard care, which is how we came to that decision to use 90 minutes as the cutoff. Right. And I guess that some of the, the additional analgesic agents would be kicking in by that time for people who got rescue analgesics. Yes. Well, the seventh question is about blinding. You did not have an active or placebo control, like a sham, in an attempt to blind this trial. All the clinicians and all the participants were aware of their group allocation. This could have biased the study. And we understand the ethical concerns about using a placebo control, like inhaled saline or something like that, for patients with painful conditions. Did you consider having an inhaled nitrous oxide as a active comparator? Because I understand nitrous oxide is used quite commonly in Australia. Um, yep. So certainly we were looking to look at um, mefoxifluorine versus what our current standard care is. Um, in terms of nitrous oxide, it is commonly used in Australia. Certainly for our emergency department, we do only use it in certain cubicles within the emergency department that have appropriate supervision by appropriately trained medical and nursing staff to monitor the patient um, while they're receiving nitrous oxide. Um, and we tend to reserve it most commonly for quick procedures such as um, reducing a shoulder dislocation. Yeah, we don't have nitrous in our department and I've never used it in my 25 years of uh, emergency medicine. Have you ever used it out in Calgary there, uh, Chris? Yeah, I was reducing a shoulder like just a couple of weeks ago with it. It's fantastic. Big fan, big fan. Also good to use on the ski hill uh, for reducing shoulders. So the next question is about cost. So cost is an important factor when considering a treatment modality in the emergency department. We say that with intravenous acetaminophen, or paracetamol, it was priced too high for broad adaptation in the United States, although we're in Canada. Do you know what the cost of methoxyfluorine is compared to standard care? 
So this study did not explore the cost effectiveness of mifoxifluorine compared to Stanacare. In terms of ballpark ideas, the cost of mifoxifluorine currently advertised online in Australia is approximately 44 Australian dollars, which is roughly equates to 34 US dollars per inhaler. However, we did not explore how that cost of mifoxifluorine inhaler compares to the costs associated with standard care for analgesia in the emergency department. Yeah, certainly, certainly would be interesting. Well, it is. this is a global podcast and we do have a lot of American listeners. And I know that cost does come up in their healthcare system much more so than maybe in Australia or Canada, but that's always a key aspect is how much is this going to cost and, or, you know, in the States, how much are they going to be charged? Because there's a difference between how much it costs and how much the patient is actually directly charged or the insurance company is charged. So that's why we wanted to ask if there was any information on cost. But Lisa, my final question is about malignant hyperthermia. Methoxyfluorine is a volatile anesthetic agent. It has the potential to trigger malignant hyperthermia. There has apparently only been one case in Australia after the administration of methoxyfluorine for this bad outcome. Regardless, methoxyfluorine is still contraindicated in those individuals thought to be at risk for malignant hyperthermia. How concerned should we be or the listeners be about using this medication? Is this something that you're quite concerned about in your practice? And do you need to stock dantrolene because of this risk? So the risk of malignant hyperthermia at the doses used in this study is extremely rare, as you've alluded to. A history of previous malignant hyperthermia was an exclusion criteria for our study. Um, our hospital does stock dantrolene on site. It's kept in our operating theatre area, not in our emergency department, but it would be available to be used if required. However, the likelihood of requiring it is extremely low in this context. It's nice to know that this isn't really a risk at all. So it makes me really curious about using this because it has been approved by Health Canada for use a couple of years ago. So my final question is about the aerosolizing nature or potential aerosolizing nature of this and the fact that we're still in a global pandemic. That being said, Australia is doing a bang up job of managing COVID that maybe in North America we're not doing such a great job of. Is there any concern to using this inhaler during COVID-19 and is it an aerosolizing procedure and is there any evidence for that? In terms of our study, we concluded recruitment in early January 2020, which was prior to any known cases of COVID-19 in Australia. Um, in terms of the mifoxifluorine inhalers, there's not a lot of information available about the aerosolizing nature. They're not considered to be aerosolizing in the same manner as nebulizers, but they do still require patients to remove their face mask or surgical mask to use the inhaler. Given what's going on in the world at current events related to COVID-19, our emergency department requires all staff, patients and visitors to wear face masks. Um, and therefore, we are not currently using Penfrox inhalers routinely in our emergency department. Um, in terms of staff safety with the inhalers, the inhalers themselves do have an activated carbon chamber um, that can be attached to them, which does reduce the occupational mifoxifluorine exposure to staff. Right. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense, though. You probably just probably just can't use it at this time. There's just no evidence for it, so or no evidence saying definitively that it's a safe procedure, I guess. Well, those are our 10 nerdy questions, Lisa, and you survived all 10. It's good that it didn't go from zero to 10 because that would have been 11 questions. 
All right, now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion. Yeah, Ken, we agree with the author's conclusions. Well, can you give me an SGEM bottom line then? Yeah, so consider using methoxyfluorane for rapid analgesia at triage in the emergency department. And can you resolve the case you presented? You give your patient a methoxyfluorane inhaler and they obtain some pain relief immediately. They still have quite severe pain and are moved to a treatment space for further analgesic once it is available. And how about applying this clinically, Chris? Methoxyfluorine is a rapid short-acting analgesic that can be provided in a timely fashion at emergency department triage. That being said, we are at a particularly special time in the history of the universe and COVID is happening, so using it right now is not an option, but once this is all over, it will be a great option, I think. And what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? I would say to the patient that I know you have severe pain and it's likely another kidney stone. We unfortunately don't have a treatment space available for you right at this minute, but we can give you an inhaled pain medication right now while you are waiting for one to open up. Okay, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and there was a winner this week. It was Evan Montaigne from Rochester, New York. He knew Dr. Joseph Brodinsky created four signs for the detection of meningitis. And I also want to give a special shout out to Caleb Barkin, an EMT from Summersworth, New Hampshire. They provided an extensive answer to the legalization of cannabis question from a previous episode. I will be sending both of these individuals cool skeptical prizes. Chris, what's the question this week? The Keener Contest question this week is why is methoxyfluorine no longer used as a general anesthetic? Oh, well, if you know why methoxyfluorine is no longer used as a general anesthetic, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. But now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on the use of methoxyfluorine to treat patients in the emergency department? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Lisa and her team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Also, don't forget, those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage to get CME credit for this podcast and article. We'll put the process on the SGM blog. And for those of you who are not subscribers to AEM, you can also get CME credits for listening to this SGM episode. The content is always free, but there's a small fee for the CME. Help support the SGEM and ensure that it continues to be a free, open access resource. Well, thank you, Lisa, for coming on the SGEM and talking about your odd off the press publication. Thanks very much for having me here. It's been a great opportunity to discuss the publication. And Chris, I know we started this podcast talking about Maverick. Every time you come on, I'm going to be bothering you asking you, inquiring when we can finally get together and watch Top Gun Maverick. And you said July, right? I said July, buddy. I got my fingers crossed. I've got my fingers crossed, my toes crossed, because we are switching to guns. I want permission to buzz the tower.
Lisa, to finish the show, we always have our guest skeptics read the tagline for the SGEM. And because you're Australian, we want you to do it in your thickest, best, over-the-top Australian accent. See how we go. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you've heard it on a skeptic's guide for emergency medicine. Talk to everyone next week. Mm-hmm.